are y'all? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We want to welcome those who are tuning in via live stream. Uh, we made a commitment that for as long as we can through this uh, COVID-19 crisis that we would uh, do everything in our power to make uh, our Bible studies and worship experiences available to everyone via live stream. We recognize that some people uh, acting out of prudence uh, are absent from uh, the Bible study experience. We certainly understand that and we are praying for them and for all of us as we go through this situation. But we want to do everything that we can uh, to make uh, the Bible study experience and the worship experience available to you. Uh, we live stream the noon Bible study where we are dealing with the various themes of Lent. In this Bible study experience, we want to uh, return to the book of Esther. Uh, we've been dealing with a series on Esther. Uh, we're in chapter 8 tonight, and uh, we're almost near the end. There are only nine chapters in Esther. Uh, just in the way of, of uh, summarizing, uh, review, uh, it's important for you to note that Esther uh, is a unique book uh, of the scripture because there is no reference to God in Esther. Uh, God is not mentioned. Uh, God is not even referred to in uh, the book of Esther. There's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of synagogue. In fact, there's no mention of worship at all, with the exception of a brief mention about fasting. But even in that case, the fasting was not accompanied with prayer. Uh, so that makes Esther unique. Uh, and, and, and for a long time, to be honest with you, I steered clear of Esther uh, because I was of the attitude that it didn't belong in the book. Yes, ma'am. Chapter 8. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it, it, it became, uh, uh, it, it, it was one of those books that I felt like, quite frankly, didn't belong in, in, in the Bible, and, and there are a couple of those. Uh, but <clears throat> we decided a couple of years ago that we would uh, look at Esther and try to draw uh, some things from it that uh, uh, would be helpful to us. Uh, by virtue of analogy, and, and that's what you have to do. You have to draw from the pictures that are portrayed in the various characters within Esther. Uh, and, and there are lessons to be learned from Esther as you go through the book. One of the things that uh, we have seen uh, as we have gone through uh, uh, this book up to this point is that one can be in a position of authority and yet not have real power. And uh, that seems to be the case with King Xerxes. He's called King Xerxes in Esther and other places in the Bible. He's called Artax Xerxes. It's a reference to the same person, the king of Persia. Uh, 
of the characters in Esther, and, and, and there are several, Esther herself, her relative, her uncle, uh, Mordecai, uh, Haman, who is uh, generally seen as the villain in, in Esther, although I think Mordecai is an anti-hero at best and a villain at worst. But the most pitiful uh, uh, character in Esther happens to be the king. He is so powerful that nothing is done without his consent. Yet he is so naive and he is so far removed from what is going on that he's easily trapped by others who want to use him. That's how he ends up in the situation where he is with Esther uh, and her people being threatened with destruction. Uh, Haman, uh, the, the, the bad guy in Esther, uh, is so angry that Mordecai uh, refuses to pay him proper uh, honor uh, when he passes by that Haman decides that not only should Mordecai die, but all of the people of Mordecai should die. And, 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 and that is a reference to all of the Jewish people. Uh, uh, the, the, the provinces that had been taken by uh, the Medo-Persian Empire included uh, Judah and the Jewish people. Uh, but Haman was a uh, distant relative of Mordecai, uh, their family line joined uh, at the place of Esau and Jacob. And as you know, if you know anything about uh, your biblical history, if you've ever spent any time in Sunday school, then you know that Jacob and Esau uh, constantly had tension and enmity between them. And then the children of Jacob and Esau had tension and enmity between them. And it passed down from generation to generation until now we have Haman, who was an Agagite, a, a descendant of Esau, and Mordecai, who was a descendant of Judah, uh, uh, of, of, of Israel, uh, locked in this mortal combat. And Haman conspires to have Mordecai and all of Mordecai's people put to death. And when Mordecai finds out about it, uh, he, he, he goes through various machinations with Esther to try to get her uh, to save the people. The interesting thing about how this all comes about is that Haman gets close to, Haman can't kill Mordecai and his people. He doesn't have the ability to do it. But he does have the ability to talk to the one who does have the power to do it. And so he talks to Xerxes. He convinces Xerxes that this is the right thing to do. And, and just in the way of, of review, I want you to see how he came to that conclusion. Turn back to Esther chapter 3. We're going, we're, our lesson is Esther chapter 8. But, but just in the way of review, turn back to Esther chapter 3. And look at verses 8 
and nine. Haman then spoke with King Xerxes. There's an odd set of people scattered throughout the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from those of everybody else. Worse, they disregard the king's laws. They're an affront. The king shouldn't put up with them. If it please the king, let orders be given that they be destroyed. I'll pay for it myself. I'll deposit 375 tons of silver in the royal bank to finance the operation. The king slipped his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, arch enemy of the Jews. Go ahead, the king said to Haman, it's your money. Do whatever you want with those people. That's how Haman gets the opportunity to carry out what he wants to carry out. Not because he has the power to do it, but because he has the ability to speak to the person who has the power. And the person to whom he speaks is King Xerxes. That makes Xerxes the most pitiful and pitiable figure in this book. Every time we hear of Xerxes, Xerxes doesn't know what to do. First chapter. Xerxes gets drunk. He has a party, and, and he gets drunk. And, 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 and uh, in his drunken state, he orders that his wife, at that moment, Queen Vashti, come in and prance herself and dance around and entertain his guests naked, doesn't, won't have anything on but her crown. And Vashti says, no, I'm not going. And the king don't know what to do. The scripture says the king looks around and and he doesn't know what to do. And, 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 and in this vacuum of leadership, in this vacuum of authority, his cabinet, his counselors, his spokespeople step up and say, King, you got to do something about this. You got to fix this situation. Uh, because if you don't, then all these women around here will think they can do whatever they want to do. And so, 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 so you need to pass an edict. You need to... to, to Get rid of Vashti. You need to pass a law that says that every woman has to do whatever her husband tells them to do. And that's what Xerxes does. And next thing you know, Vashti is gone. And then there's a contest to see who's going to replace Vashti. And that's where Mordecai steps in. And Mordecai uh, sees that the contest is going to take place. And he sees his, his niece, Esther, and he says, Esther can win this contest. And he pushes Esther up to, to, to uh, enter into the contest to become the next queen, uh, our, the, the next wife of Artax Xerxes. Esther doesn't care about being queen, but Mordecai wants her to be queen because Mordecai is looking for uh, the opportunity to assume a position of power within the kingdom himself. And that's why we, we have said constantly, you got to be careful of folk because even though uh, power uh, corrupts people who are at the top. Power corrupts all the way down. Mordecai is guilty of being, not guilty, he's a victim of being exploited by a system that has made him a slave to the Medo-Persian empire. But even though he's a slave, he's going to exploit somebody else. 
which, which reminds you that you don't have to be a part of the superior group in order to use other folk. So he uses Esther in order to accomplish what he is trying to accomplish. And Esther eventually becomes uh, queen. Uh, but uh, Mordecai doesn't get the position that he wanted to get out of that. In, in fact, the position goes to Haman. And Mordecai refuses to show Haman the proper respect for the position that he now holds. He, he is, in effect, prime minister, second in command in all of the kingdom, a position that Mordecai thought should go to him, but it didn't go to him. So he doesn't show uh, Haman any proper respect. Haman walks through. Mordecai doesn't stand. He doesn't bow. Uh, Haman finds out who Mordecai is, and he says, I'm going to kill him and all of the people. And so he goes to Xerxes, and, and he convinces Xerxes to allow him to wipe out, to eviscerate this entire people. And he says, if you got a problem with it because it'll cost too much money, I'll pay for it myself. And since I'll pay for it, it ought to be all right with you. And, and, and Xerxes is so indifferent to the utter destruction of a people that he says, well, if you're going to pay for it, if it ain't going to cost me anything, you, might as well, you, you can do whatever you want. Then Mordecai learns of what is going to happen, and he approaches Esther, and he tells Esther, you got to step in. Understand, Mordecai is the one who messed up, right? Mordecai is the one who made the mistake, but Mordecai now needs Esther's help in order to fix the problem that Mordecai has caused. He says, you got to go before the king, and, and, and you have to convince him that what Haman is trying to do is wrong. And Esther says, I can't go before the king. Because to go before the king without him sending for me, without him summoning me, is to take my life in my hands. And Mordecai says, what makes you think that your life ain't already in, in, in danger? Do you think that because you're the queen that you're going to be spared of the destruction that's going to come to the rest of us? Do you see how Mordecai is only concerned about Mordecai? He's only concerned about his outcome. And so he uses his influence to convince Esther to break the law in order to see the king. So Esther decides that she has to uh, fast and she has to contemplate how she's going to do this. And so she says, you go home and you tell all of our people to fast, and I'm going to tell all of our people here to fast, and, and, and in three days I'm going to figure this whole thing out. Next thing you know, Esther doesn't go to the king. The scripture says she just put herself in position where the king would see her. And, 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 and the king was so beguiled by her beauty, so taken by her, that when he saw her, he summoned her to him. And when she came, he extended his scepter to her, and she touched his scepter. And when she touched his scepter, she did it in such a way that he said, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, you can have it. I, I, anything that you want up to half my kingdom is yours. All you have to do is ask. And Esther plays it off and says, all, all I want is for, you, is for you and Haman to come to dinner. 
That's all I care about. It's for you and Haman to come to dinner. So, so the king and Haman come to dinner. Do you see how Xerxes is just weak through this whole process? They, they come to dinner. And when they come to dinner, Xerxes says for a second time, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, all you got to do is ask. And she says, oh, I really don't want anything. Uh, all I want is for y'all to come back tomorrow night. We, we, we had such a good time here tonight. I, 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 I just want y'all to come back tomorrow night. And so Haman goes home, and Haman tells his wife and his friends that he had the uh, privilege of dining exclusively with the king and the queen and that he had such a wonderful time. And he says, and we've been invited back tomorrow night for, for another dinner, just the three of us. And I know that I would have a good time except for that low-down, no-good Mordecai. I passed by Mordecai, and, and, and Mordecai did what he always does. He didn't, he didn't respect me. He didn't bow to me. He didn't pay me the proper homage. And, 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 and his wife, uh, uh, Haman's wife, Zeresh, says, well, this is what you ought to do. You, 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 you ought to build a gallows 75 feet high, and, and, and you ought to build it right outside the house. And, 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 and when you see Mordecai, you ought to convince the king to go ahead and let Mordecai be hung. And, and, and you're going to hang him from the gallows that, that, that's 75 feet high so that everybody for miles around can see what happens when you cross Haman. And Haman said, that's a good idea. That's what I'm going to do. Well, in the next chapter, uh, Xerxes is up at night, and, and he can't sleep. For whatever reason, he's having trouble sleeping. And while he's having trouble sleeping, he decides to read something. And, 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 and as he's reading the record of what uh, has taken place within his kingdom, he comes across an account where Mordecai was actually responsible for saving the king's life. Now, this is how out of touch the king is. He doesn't even remember that Mordecai saved him from a conspiracy designed to take his life. He calls in, folks, and said, when did this happen? And, and, and did I ever do anything for Mordecai when, when, when this happened? And, and, and the person that he's talking to said, I don't think you ever did anything for him. He says, who's, who's outside? Now, it, it's late because it says he couldn't sleep. So it's somewhere between midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning, my speculation, Fred's speculation, somewhere between midnight and two o'clock in the morning. And, 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 and the, the, the uh, keeper, the, the, the butler for the king says, well, Haman is hanging out in the, in the courtyard out there. What, what you hanging out in the courtyard for at midnight? In somebody else's courtyard at midnight. And, and, and the king says, well, bring him in. I, 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 I need to talk to him. He, he'll be a good person for me to talk to. And so he brings Haman in and he says, what should I do to show honor to someone who deserves honor? Now, Haman is so myopic. Haman is so self-centered that he thinks he's talking about him. And, and so Haman says, this is what you ought to do. You ought to give him a robe that you wore 
and put it on him yourself and give him a horse that you have ridden on. And you ought to cause your servants to parade him up and down the streets of all the provinces of Persia, saying this is what happens when you show honor to the king. This is how you get treated. This is the reward for that. Now, Haman thinks that's going to happen to him. And Xerxes says, you know what? That's a good idea. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Look look at Esther chapter 6. When Haman entered, the king said, what would be appropriate for the man the king especially wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, he must be talking about honoring me. Who else? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, do this. Bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crown on its head. Then give, I, I missed that part. There's a crown on the horse's head. I didn't catch that part the first time I read it. There's a crown on the horse's head. Then give the robe and the horse to one of the king's most noble princes. Have him robe the man whom the king especially wants to honor. Have the prince lead him on horseback through the city square, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man whom the king especially wants to honor. And Haman is waiting for him to say, that's what I'm going to do for you. But instead, the king says, that's what I want you to do for Mordecai. And of course, Haman has to do it, and he does it, but he's mortified by it. He's He's, he's angry and he's upset. And apparently he did it all day long. Because the next thing you read in chapter 7 is that it's time for him to go to dinner with Esther and King Xerxes. That's chapter 7. And in chapter 7, Esther confesses to what she has done and why she has done it. That's where we left off last week. I've taken 24 minutes to get up to here. Uh, uh, Esther tells the king what it is that she really wants. Again, the king says, up to half my kingdom. Third time he says that. Up to half my kingdom, all you got to do is ask. And it's yours. And Esther says, I don't want your kingdom. What I want is to confess to you what I have done. I have actually broken the law in order to get near to you. And I have deceived you in order to make light, make, bring to light, I should say, the deception of Haman. And as a result of what Esther did, the king becomes angry with Haman. So angry that he steps out into the courtyard. He's, he's burning with anger. And while he steps out in the courtyard, Haman falls at Esther's feet. And he's clinging to Esther and he's begging, please don't, 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 don't make the king kill me. Please let the king spare me. And the king walks in and sees Haman grabbing on to Esther and said, you trying to take her right here in my presence? And Haman says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not at all what I'm I'm trying to do. He he said, well, it sure looks like it. And somebody said, you know, there's a hanging gallows right outside Haman's house. It's already been built. All you got to do is put somebody on it. And the king said, put Haman on it. And so the gallows that Haman built with the intention 
of killing Mordecai ends up being the gallows upon which Haman himself is killed. That's how chapter 7 ended, and that brings us into chapter 8. You ready? 26 minutes. But it was worth it to get where we are. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, arch enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king because Esther had explained their relationship. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Esther appointed Mordecai over Haman's estate. Then Esther again spoke to the king, falling at his feet, begging with tears to counter the evil of Haman the Agagite and revoke the plan that he had plotted against the Jews. The king extended his gold scepter to Esther. She got to her feet and stood before the king. She said, if it pleased the king, and if he regards me with favor and thinks this is right, and if he has any affection for me at all, that's the way you talk to him, if you have any affection for me at all, let an order be written that cancels the bulletins authorizing the plan of Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, to annihilate the Jews in all the king's provinces. How can I stand to see this catastrophe wipe out my people? How can I bear to stand by and watch the massacre of my own relatives? King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he's been hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. So go ahead now and write whatever you decide on behalf of the Jews, then seal it with the signet ring. An order written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring is irrevocable. So the king's secretaries were brought in on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, and the order regarding the Jews was written word for word as Mordecai dictated and was addressed to the satraps, governors, and officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to each province in its own script and each people in their own language, including the Jews in their script and language. He wrote it under the name of King Xerxes and sealed the order with the royal signet ring. He sent out the bulletins by couriers on horseback, riding the fastest royal steeds bred from the royal stud. The king's order authorized the Jews in every city to arm and defend themselves. Anything against anything owned by their enemies. The day set for this in all King Xerxes' provinces was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. The order was posted in public places in each province so everyone could read it, authorizing the Jews to be prepared on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, fired up by the king's order, raced off on their royal horses. At the same time, the order was posted in the palace complex of Susa. Mordecai walked out of the king's presence wearing a royal robe of violet and white a huge gold crown and a purple cape of fine linen. 
The city of Zeus exploded with joy. For Jews, it was all sunshine and laughter. They celebrated. They were honored. It was that way all over the country. In every province, every city, when the king's bulletin was posted, the Jews took to the streets in celebration, cheering and feasting. Not only that, but many non-Jews became Jews. Now it was dangerous not to be a Jew. All right. So what happens here in this eighth chapter? The seventh chapter is the climax of the story. The seventh chapter is, is where we are told that uh, Haman dies and that uh, uh, the people are going to be spared. But it's in chapter eight that we see how the sparing takes place. There's several things that I want you to see in this eighth chapter that I think are important. Number one. The power of deliverance is that it is pervasive. It is not limited to one group or one decision. A deliverance in one aspect of our lives often results in a deliverance in other areas as well. What... what, are you referring to? I'm referring to the fact that when Xerxes gave Esther the estate of Haman and Mordecai came before the king and Mordecai was then honored by the king. Mordecai essentially takes Haman's place. What happens is deliverance takes place. Deliverance and salvation mean essentially the same thing. Uh, when, when you say that I have been, uh, I have experienced salvation, what you're actually saying is I have been delivered. So if you picture this from the standpoint of a salvation, a salvific deliverance, one of the things that you have to recognize is that salvation and deliverance is pervasive. It's not just one part of you that's delivered. It's all of you. That's delivered. Have you ever felt bad about something? Have you ever allowed what you felt bad about to, to, to take all your energy? Have you ever stubbed your toe? Have you ever stubbed your baby toe? Let me tell you something. I don't care how big you are. I don't care how strong you are. You stub your baby toe. All of you hurts. Every part. You don't just have to put the toe somewhere. You got to put all of you somewhere. You ever have a cavity? And, and, and it gets down into the nerve. And you start to have a toothache. Now, you got 30... Well, some people got 32 teeth in their mouth. Not everybody, but some people got 32 teeth in their mouth. And one of the 32 teeth, one of the 32 teeth has a hole in it that's allowing air to get down into the nerve. And that one little pinprick of a hole in one of your 32 teeth causes so much pain that you got to go take Advil, Aleve, Tylenol, all at the same time, you got to go lay down, you got to take a nap, 
because the pain in one little part of your life causes the rest of your whole body to be of no use. Well, just like that's true about pain, that's also true about deliverance. You fix that hole in your tooth. All of a sudden, you feel fine. How you feeling? Oh, I don't feel so good. This cavity's got me down. You let them fix the cavity. How you feel? I feel fine. Because all of a sudden, once one part of you has been delivered, all of you has been delivered. Deliverance is pervasive. It's not just to one aspect of your life, but it results in the deliverance of other aspects of your life as well. Second thing I want you to see is that in order to receive deliverance, you have to be willing to make a confession. You have to be willing to acknowledge that you are wrong. And you also have to be willing to acknowledge that you don't have the power to fix the wrong that you have made. You can't fix it. Here's the thing. You can break something and not be able to fix it. I, I don't know about, some of y'all are, are, are real good craftsmen and, and all this other kind of stuff. I ain't good with my hands at all. If I break something, it's broke. You, 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 you might as well throw it away. All you got to do is take some glue and you got to do, that ain't me. Ain't going to work. Once it's broken, I am helpless to fix it. That's the way it is with regard to our deliverance. In order to be delivered, you have to make two acknowledgments. Number one, you have to acknowledge that you've been wrong. And number two, you have to acknowledge that you're helpless to do anything about the wrong that you have been. Therefore, you have to surrender to the one who can make it right. And that's God. That's what we see here. Esther spoke to the king, and Esther begs for the king to counter the evil that Haman has done by revoking the plan that had been put into effect by Haman. Haman had set a date and had announced it throughout all 127 provinces that this would be the day and the time when the Jews would be destroyed. And Esther said, I need you to correct this. I can't correct it. I don't have the ability to do it. Have you ever seen yourself in a position where you can't fix the problems that you have caused? I'm not just talking about breaking something. I'm, I'm talking about a broken life. It's easy to mess up. It's a whole lot harder to fix what you have messed up. It's easy to tie a knot. It's real hard to untie it. And yet, in order for the knot to be untied, we have to recognize that we can't do it, but there is one who can. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, I see in my members, another law at war 
with the law of my mind, and it makes me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. Paul, Paul starts that, that clause by saying, I want to do what's right. I know what's right. And I want to do it. But here's the problem. When I would do good, evil is present on every hand. And I find that the things that I say I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things that I say I'm going to do, I leave undone. I can't help myself. If, if, if there's any picture to be drawn from Esther that is helpful to us with regard to our relationship with God, it is this. You can't fix your life on your own. You're helpless to fix your life on your own. Why do I need Jesus? Because you can't help yourself. What is it that we used to sing? If the Lord don't help me, I can't stand the storm. You can't make yourself right, but you can surrender to the one who can. So Esther comes to Xerxes, and Esther falls at Xerxes' feet and surrenders herself to Xerxes. Now, here's the problem. Xerxes says, I've already signed a law, and it's been sealed with my signet ring, and I can't undo what I have done. I can't change the law that has been written. But what I can do is allow for you to write a different law. And so he, he, he says, I've given you Haman's property, his estate, everything that he owns belongs to you. And by the way, did you see how Esther gave everything that Xerxes gave to her, to Mordecai? Mordecai's always getting stuff. Always getting stuff. Uh, but, but, but she gave it all to Mordecai. And, and, and the king says, I can't undo the law that I've done because it's written. But you can write a law that overrules the law that I have written. Turn your Bibles to Romans. Chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Key verses, verse 2. I'm going to start with verse 1. Romans chapter 8. Verse 2 is the key verse. I'm going to start with verse 1. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. 
a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Let me read that to you from the New International Version. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. What Paul describes here in Romans is essentially what takes place in Esther. Xerxes says, I can't undo the law that was written. But the law that was written can be superseded. The law that was written can be covered by a different law that insulates us from the effect of the previous law. Do you see that that's what Jesus does? That's what Paul says Jesus does. That's shouting stuff. God does not change his character. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God with standards, and he expects his creation to live up to the standards that he has established. But here's the problem. You can't live up to them. Neither can I. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Isaiah says, the righteousness that you do is as filthy rags before God. There is nothing about us that allows us to arrive at the standard that God has set. So, God has a law. God has a standard. None of us meets the standard. And the fact that none of us meets the standard means what? That all of us are condemned to death. Just as we have said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul also says the wages of sin, the cost of sin, the penalty for sin, the price for sin is death. And we ain't talking physical death. We're talking spiritual death. We're talking eternal separation, estrangement from the presence and power of God. The wages, the cost of our sin is that estrangement. That's what the law says. And God does not eliminate his law. He does not backtrack on his law. He does not erase his law. What God does is God instills a different law that insulates us from the effect of the first law. The wages of sin is death. But there's a but. After that wages of sin thing, there's a but. And the but says, the gift of God is eternal life. So the new law does not eliminate the old law. The new law insulates us from the effects of the old law. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians. 
chapter 2. Key verse is verse 20, but I'm going to start with verse 19. Galatians chapter 2, starting with verse 19. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Boy, I love the message version of the Bible. I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. The law of Christ, the law of Christ dwelling in us, counteracts the law of sin and death that the covenant established, that God's law of justice established. I tell people all the time, I, I say this all the time on Sunday morning, if you prefer justice over mercy, you have an exaggerated opinion of yourself. Because justice can't carry you where you want to go. Justice doesn't do anything for you but condemn you. Justice points out all of your faults. And it takes a different law. It takes a, a different standard to cover all of your faults and all of your failures and all of your weaknesses. And that comes by virtue of a surrender to Jesus Christ. Xerxes says, I can't undo the law, but you can write a different law. And in writing the different law, you can insulate yourself from the effects of the law that I have. So Xerxes writes a law that says that on the given day, at the given time, all of the Jews were authorized by the king to defend themselves against anyone who would come against them, defend themselves against anyone who would attack them, defend themselves against anyone who would try to destroy them. And so they all took up arms and they all were sitting there waiting for the day to come when somebody was going to try to attack them. The king's order, verse 11 of chapter 8. The king's order authorized the Jews in every city to arm and defend themselves to the death, killing anyone who threatened them or their women and children and confiscating for themselves anything owned by their enemies. That's what the law of Christ does for us. It frees us. 
not only does it free us, but it authorizes us to live as free people. Again, looking at what Paul writes in Galatians, he says, my ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. Isn't it nice when you reach a place when you ain't worried about what folk think about you? Most of our lives, we spend our time worrying about what other folk think about us. Worried about what other folk might say about us. Worried about how other folk might feel about us. And we tailor our behavior, we tailor our thought process around our concerns of what other folk might say or do. No, I can't say that because they'll, they'll, they'll think I mean this, or I can't do that, or I can't go there. Paul says, I ain't worried about that stuff no more. I've reached a place where none of that, man, I don't care what you think about me. He goes, he goes a step further. He, he says, I no longer am driven to impress God. Isn't that a, a powerful statement? I want you to understand what he's saying. He's not saying that, he, that, that, that what God thinks is of no concern to him. He's saying that if I live in Christ, I already know what God thinks. If I live in Christ, I know that my life is right. And so I don't have to concern myself with trying to do things to impress God. You know how, how we like to talk about all the times we came to church when it was raining? God, you, you need to bless me because it was storming and I went to church. God, you need to bless me because I paid my tithe even when I didn't know where my next check was going to come from. Always trying to impress God. Paul says when you're in Christ and when Christ is in charge, you're no longer interested in trying to impress God because you know that the life that you live is impressive enough because it's not you anymore. It's Christ living in me. Now, whereas you and I are completely and utterly unimpressive, Jesus is very impressive. How impressive is he? He who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might have the righteousness, enjoy the righteousness of God. How impressive is he? Isaiah says of him, he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was placed upon him, and it is by his stripes that we have been healed. How impressive is he? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. So when you surrender your life to Christ and when Christ lives in you, then even though you are utterly unimpressive, the Jesus that dwells in you is most impressive. And so Paul says, I, I'm no longer concerned with those kinds of things. I'm no longer concerned with, with proving myself to you, and I'm no longer concerned with impressing God. I just want to live in Christ. And the closer I get to him, the better off life is. Last thing I want to say, and we're done. I got six minutes left. I'm not going to use all six minutes. Mordecai walked out of the king's presence. 
wearing a royal robe of violet and white, a huge gold crown and a purple cape of fine linen. The city of Susa exploded with joy. For Jews, it was all sunshine and laughter. They celebrated, they were honored. It was that way all over the country, in every province, every city, when the king's bulletin was posted. The Jews took to the streets in celebration, cheering and feasting. That's good enough, but read the last line. Not only that, but many non-Jews became Jews. Now it was dangerous not to be a Jew. I like the last line because it serves as a reminder that when you find your relationship with God, the joy ain't just for you. The joy is for everybody. Even if you weren't a Jew, the folk became Jews. The folk went through the process of becoming Jews because they wanted to share in the covering that the Jews enjoyed because of the shift in the law. When you come into Christ, the joy that you have ain't just your joy, but it's a joy that's available. To I, I said to the group at, at, at 12 o'clock uh, and, and those who were watching, uh, you should not be content with just having something for you. You ought to want to share it with others. And, 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 and the good thing about being in Christ is that once you know that you are in Christ, it has a way of radiating out. It has a way of covering others, and, 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 and people want to be a part of what you have. I say to, to, to them, every now and then, people ask me, why don't I talk more about hell? You, you don't teach about hell. You don't preach about hell. And my response is, I don't need to preach about hell. I can preach about heaven. I don't need to preach about the devil. I can preach about Jesus. I don't need to preach about condemnation when I can preach about commendation. I would rather focus on the positive that is Christ and have you drawn to him based upon the joy that is found in Christ than have you run, to, as the old preachers used to say, run or burn, come or perish. Uh, that's a heck of an alternative. And, and if the only reason why you come into God is to keep from burning in the pits of hell, that's a poor reason to come. The Jews celebrated, and those that were around them were so caught up in their celebration, they said, we want to celebrate too. We want to be a part of what you are part of. And so they went through the process of becoming what the Jews were in order to share in their celebration. There's somebody out there who's watching you. As we're going through this COVID-19 crisis, somebody is watching 
you? Where do you stand? How are you going to respond? How are you going to react? And they're going to take their cues from you. And if you are in Christ, you ought to be able to respond to this, not in, 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 in some kind of fantasy where you're acting like it does not exist, because certainly it exists and it is real, but in a confidence that says, no matter what, I'm in God and I trust in him. No matter what, I'm going to stand with him. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And my trust, my dependence, my confidence is in him. And I will not allow myself to let this virus or anything else. What is it Paul says? Nothing. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He talks about height and depth. He talks about principalities and powers. He talks about past and present and future. Well, throw in COVID-19. I'm not going to let that separate me either. I'm not going to let illness. I'm not going to let the prospect of illness and death. I'm not going to let anything separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that Thou biddest me come to Thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.